The second theme, the first theme is the destruction of a civilization, a city, Troy. And the second is um, in, in this emergence of the West um, as a civilization that really is set apart from the rest of the world, um, we come to understand something about her human nature. And one of the things that separates the West from the East, what makes it possible for the West to win that, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> Those meatballs are really spicy, they're really good. Um, one of the things that makes it possible for the West to come out um, ahead in that battle, it's an awful battle, the civilizations are destroyed. It's like Babylon or Persia, I mean, we, we watch civilizations come and go. Ours, ours is, some could say it's on the way out. What makes it possible for the West to emerge victorious in that battle is a new understanding of the human person. That's how important it is. And I don't want to go into that. You're going to have to read to find out. Um, but there's going to be this amazing sense of the, of the worth, the dignity of the human being that separates the West from the East. Um, and I, I, I don't want to tell you why, what that means, you know, but read to find out. Um, you've got the study guide. Um, in case you didn't see it, we printed another copy of the study guide. It's so that um, each page is on a whole sheet, so it's not as small. The print isn't as small as the print that you guys have. So if you didn't get a copy, there should be enough copies for everybody. It's just a more readable copy, the one that we put out tonight. So be sure you get that, if, if you want. You don't have to get it, but I think it's easier to read. It's more readable. And the other thing is there are copies of um, a sheet that I wanted to, to go over tonight and the poem that we're reading tonight by Dunn. So you should have a sheet on the emotions. You should have a John Dunn poem, his, um, one of his holy sonnets, sonnets seven. Hear this all right? Yes. Um, and Elliot's Four Quartets. And let me just say a word about the Four Quartets. T.S. Eliot is probably the greatest poet of the 20th century. And um, it's, it's too hard to do justice to his greatness in just a few minutes, but let me, let me just leave it at this. Eliot found a voice for the modern world uh, that was very much needed because the modern world had so radically turned away from its past. When Eliot began writing, people knew that they were reading something new and very important. One of his major, the two major poems that he's known for are the, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock and The Wasteland. And The Wasteland is looked at as, as a seminal poem because it's about the spiritual wasteland of the West. The, the, waste, the, the West has lost its roots, its spiritual roots. It's, it's in the process of dying. And that poem marks that awareness of that fact. The intellectuals loved him, absolutely flocked around him because he was such a brilliant man, so bright. One of the great critics of the 20th century. But they all turned on him um, with his conversion to Christianity. He was raised um, Christian. He was born in America, went to England to stay because he thought of America as a, as a dust bowl, which is culturally it's it wasn't as rich as Europe. He went to Europe and um, converted. And, he, and he, um, his roots are Puritan. They go back to the 
Protestant character in America. When he went to England, he converted and became an Anglo-Catholic. Um, and um, the four quartets, the, the poems that I've given you, are the last great works of his life. They are not easy to read. Um, my suggestion to you all is that you read them and not worry about understanding them. Eliot himself would, would say, and, and kids know this better than adults, I think, very often you feel something long before you understand it. I, I, hope, that, I hope the teachers hear that. You know, we expect everybody to understand things in our head right away. And very often, very often we know, I want to stress this, we know things through our feelings long before we can clarify them with our ideas. Sometimes a wife will feel something about her husband. She will, what, what St. Thomas calls connatural affection. It's a form of knowledge. It's a sympathy with. It's actually a form of knowledge. Um, we very often know things through our feelings long before we can put words to them. So when you read Eliot, if you find yourself struggling, be patient. Try to hear the music, feel it. Um, when we, later, when we start the epics, I'm going to start going through the four quartets by sections because each one is too long to read in an evening. It would, it would take up too much time. But those are the poems, okay? So read the, the Eliot quartets at your leisure. Um, sometime probably after Christmas, um, when we have enough sustained time ahead of us, we'll pick them up and we'll go through them, okay? So, um, any questions or... Okay, um, I feel like I'm leaving something out. Any prayer requests? I think that's all the practical stuff. Any prayer requests? Just for cancer? Perhaps. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What's her name? Her name is Jacqueline. Jacqueline? Jacqueline. 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 Yeah. Or Jackie. Jackie. Anybody else? In the name of the Father, Son, let me say before, because so you won't be caught off guard on the prayers. Um, Pam and Jennifer? Who, are, who were just faithful. I mean, I saw them once at a Mass at here when I, Suzanne and I came on a, I think a Saturday, I can't remember. Were here and then have not been here for several weeks and um, wrote a letter. Um, Jennifer had broke her ankle. Her mother was struggling with something and said they will be back, but, but they've been suffering. So I'm going to include them in our prison. Larry and his wife, um, are, have been gone. Larry went in for foot, I think a, um, what I think was a relatively, what people thought would be a relatively minor um, foot surgery, but they discovered when they went in that he had um, heart blockages. So they had to do a heart operation and they put three stints in his heart and she asked for our prayers. So Larry and his wife, um, they said they'll be back soon, but just, we're all of that age. Um, I would ask, I'm asking this actually pretty seriously, that at home in the 
between time, between classes, that you keep us all in your prayers. Pray for Suzanne and me, please. Um, we are grateful for your prayers um, and for each other, okay? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our lives. Um, we just passed through a period of thanksgiving. Um, a small group of Christians um, gave up everything, everything in their lives, their families, their nation, their country, their possessions, to come here in order to worship you. Um, we celebrate Thanksgiving, and so often the, the festivities of the period um, keep us from remembering exactly what we're being thankful for. They are a reminder to all of us that, that we're asked, each one of us, all of us, to risk our lives our jobs, our careers, our possessions for you. Always hard. I think it's even more hard the more comfortable we get. So um, we offer our thanksgiving for all the blessings that we enjoy. Whatever sorrows come with them, um, let all of our sorrows be means of strengthening each one of us in our faiths. Um, but during this period, um, let our hearts be thankful for all that we have. I ask a special blessing on Jackie. Um, watch over her. Um, if there are problems, be with her. Surround her with your strength. Um, let Connie's hearts be at ease for her mom. And um, um, we ask for a special blessing on Pam and um, Jennifer. Um, let Jennifer's um, um, foot heel, um, watch over her mom, be with Larry and his wife, particularly Larry. Um, um, let the recovery from the surgery go well. Strengthen his heart. He's a, <laughs> a bold, fearless speaker. Um, um, I miss him. Um, watch over him. Get him back here. Um, I'm going to send a letter to him telling him to knock it off. Um, be with him, help him recover his health. We offer all these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, several of you, we're going to take a little break before we, we get back to Anthony and Cleopatra. Several of you had asked questions um, last time we met about all's well. So I, oh, <laughs> um, by the way, have you all noticed? <laughs> wait, wait. The applause should go for four of you who came in in sequence, two minutes apart, so they didn't even hear the other person. Each one came in, not having heard the other one, going, don't forget the notes, don't forget the notes. Make sure you put up the notes. Have you put out the notes yet? It took four of you to get them up there. Um, can you get your poem out? Let's read that poem. It's the John Donne poem. I picked this one out um, because it's a little bit heavy. In some ways, it would be more appropriate for Easter. Can I borrow it, Doc? This is a, a small Lent. We're asked to see this as a period of disciplining ourselves with small efforts at restraining ourselves, giving up things, <laughs> denying ourselves, 
making more efforts to be selfless, to put ourselves away, to be more mindful of our sins the way all of us carry them and to see our sins as a help in our efforts to be closer to each other, not act like we're above them or above other people. It's all in preparation for Christ's coming, um, so it's a time of waiting. It's a, it's a time to be patient and hope. So um, with that in mind, I'm going to try to, I, I'm not sure that I'll always be able to do it, but with that in mind, I'd like to try to find lyrics over the next couple of weeks that that are appropriate for um, the coming, the discipline that we take on um, before Christmas. This is a poem by John Donne. Yeah. It's, it it's, should have been on the table. I don't think you have it in the packet that I gave you. It's Holy Son at number seven. I didn't include it in the packet. I, I printed it off tonight. There should be copies. I think, there aren't there copies back there? This is John Donne's. Um, John Donne lived at the time of Shakespeare. Um, I've, I've written, actually written an article on him that's published in a book called The Lyric Prospect. Go online and buy that book. <laughs> I, I don't get any royalties, but I think it's a really good book on the lyric, on lyric poetry. And I, I think the piece on Donne, I think, is actually really good. Um, and in that piece, I described Dunn as living at a, at a watershed moment in history because um, all of our notions having to do with love go back to the Christian Middle Ages, what was virtually a Catholic world. The Reformation hadn't taken place yet. He's writing, Dunn is converted from Catholicism to Anglicanism. Um, it's something, I, which means he was really Catholic in sensibility. You know, um, but he, he wrote at a time when our, our, the value that we gave love was disappearing, it was fading. We were about to enter the modern world and a whole new world was, was um, calling into question everything about the Middle Ages, the Christian Middle Ages. So he's the last great poet to write a, a, almost an entire body of poems devoted to love. That's how important. Nobody, nobody, no other poet in the English language, no other poet in the English language has written as many poems on love. The desires, the passions. Um, and <clears throat> towards the end of his life, he wrote a, um, a, a group of poems called the Holy Sonnets and a number of religious poems to God the Father and to Christ. If you've not read them, I, I just recommend picking up a book of Dunn's poems and reading them. They're, they're wonderful poems. And they mark the end of the Christian Middle Ages. We're about to enter the modern world. And, and if you know anything about poetry, you know after that you've got the 18th century poets who are they're, they're certainly not as devoted to love. And then the 19th century romantics, Wordsworth, Keats, Shelley, all of those. And their understanding of love is radically different from what it was for Dunn. The object of their poet is, poetry is very, very different. So Dunn really marks an important stage in, in Western civilization. Um, okay? I chose one of them. This is one from the, his holy, the collection of what he calls the Holy Sonnets. Okay? This is sonnet number seven. At the round earth's imagined corners blow, 
At the round earth's imagined corners, blow your trumpets, angels, and arise. Arise from death, you numberless infinities of souls, and to your scattered bodies go. All whom the flood did and fire shall overthrow, all whom war, dearth, age, agues, tyrannies, despair, law, chance has slain. And you whose eyes shall behold God and never taste death's woe. But let them sleep, Lord, and me mourn a space. For if above all these my sins abound, tis late to ask abundance of thy grace when we are there. Here on this lowly ground, teach me now, he's saying, teach me how to repent. For that's as good as if thou had sealed my pardon with thy blood. So while we're here, um, teach us all how to repent. Um, good time to do it. Okay. Um, let's see now, because so now we can get to all's well. Okay. I want to do just a couple of things. I wasn't planning to do this, but some of you had serious questions, so let me take just a few minutes to go over some of the scenes in All's Well, just to recall it, um, because we'd, we'd already started on uh, Anthony Cleopatra. Turn to Act 3, Scene 7. I'm trusting you all remember the plot. Um, the, All's Well is, is set in France. It's an aristocratic monarchy. Um, it's a monarchical regime. Um, the king's um, in charge. Um, the king is ill. He's dying. Um, Bertram's father just died. Helena's father just died. Shakespeare is letting us know that this kingdom is in decline. Um, we don't see heirs. Fathers are dying off. And we can see a decay morally in the court because the, the court has no sense of... Um, um, the, the value of a community and people giving their lives for it. The men want to go off to war in Italy for no reason, except their own vainglory. They, have, um, they, they um, offer their obedience to the king and, and don't give it, and, uh, at least certainly not in, in Bertram. Bertram wants to go off to war. Helena loves him. And in Helena, we see a person who loves a man when nobody around her can see why. I mean, he, he, on the surface, he's obviously a good-looking man, and he seems to be a noble man, but we learn very quickly that he's, he's a scoundrel in lots of ways. But she continues to love him, and um, she's, she sees the king's sickness as an occasion for um, giving her a chance to pick out a lord. So she goes to offer her life, heals the king, risks her life to do it. If she fails, she's she's going to be executed, so she puts her life on the line. She cures him, and um, Bertram, and so offers her the choice of any man she wants to marry. She chooses Bertram. He doesn't want to do it. The king gets really angry at him, and Bertram runs, goes off to Italy. She follows him, and, um, and because of the plot that she makes up with uh, Diana and her mother, the widow, she manages to pull off this um, trick in which she meets the conditions which Bertram set on her. When he was forced to marry her, he fled and, and left a letter saying to her that he would never marry her until she could be, uh, beget a child by him 
and get the ring off his finger. And that ring was an ancestral ring. It represented the worth of traditions, generations going back. When you know that when she goes to Italy, she meets with the, uh, the, the mother and Diana and arranges this plot to get the ring off of um, Bertram and to have a child by exchanging places with Diana, um, who's a virgin because Bertram has become interested in him. And we know that he only just wants sex. As soon as he has sex, he's gone. That's the play, okay? Turn to um, that scene, Act 3, Scene 7, because I just want to pull some of, the, some of the lines together to try to focus whatever time we're going to spend on this. Helen is beginning to, to hatch this plot <clears throat> with... The widow, she says to the widow that um, that she needs that ring off of his hand um, because that was one of the conditions. Now remember, Bertram set the conditions. She did not. So everything she's doing is in obedience to him. She's having to, to adjust everything in her life to try to meet his conditions. One of them was to get that ring. About line 30, the widow says, Now I see the bottom of your purpose. You see it lawful then. It is no more but that your daughter, ere she seems as one, desires this ring, appoints him an encounter, in fine delivers me to fill the time herself most chastely absent. So Diana's going to make this arrangement with Bertram sexually that night to meet. It's going to be in dark. Helen is going to take his place. He won't know it. Um, she will get the ring off, and the hope is that she'll conceive. I mean, that obviously it's going to um, it's going to coincide with her time of fertility, so she will um, have a child. In fine, delivers me to fill the time herself most chastely absent. So the 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 daughter Diana is not going to give up her virginity. Okay, she's she's going to let Helena substitute for her. After to marry her, I'll add this 3,000 crowns to what is passed already. The widow, I have yielded, instruct my daughter how she shall pers um, persevere that time and place with this deceit so lawful may prove coherent. Every night he comes with musics of all sorts and songs composed to her unworthiness. It nothing steads us to chide him from our eaves, for he persists as if li his life lay in it. He's so motivated by his lust, he praises her, he compliments her, he does everything he can to get her in bed. Um, Elena, why then tonight let us assay our plot, which if its speed is wicked, meaning in a lawful deed, and lawful meaning in a lawful act, where both not sin and yet a sinful fact. But let's about it. If you've read the play, you know that Shakespeare's using um, paradoxes all the way through from the very opening lines. So one of the questions we have to ask is what Helena does licit, lawful, okay? Which then tonight let us, a serapot, which if speed is wicked meaning in a lawful deed and lawful meaning in a lawful act. Now hold on to that. Remember what happens. Um, Parolles is unmasked, and Bertrand returns to court, and um, it, it looks like everybody will be reconciled. Diana appears and claims to be Bertram's wife because they had sex together. Um, Lefeu, just before that, Lefeu is going to um, offer his daughter 
in marriage to Bertram because Helen, everybody thinks she's dead. He sees the ring on Helena's finger and recognizes it. Or I mean on, on Diana's. And um, it's the king, it's the ring the king gave Helena after she healed him. So immediately people suspect Edward of, ha or I mean um, Bertram of having done something with um, Helena. For, um, the king gets angry and asks, um, they, Bertram can't give a satisfactory answer, takes him away, and then he gets angry at um, Diana and asks her how she got the ring. And she says, uh, this is the very end of the act, the very end of the play, um, she, will not, she will not disclose how she got it. Um, The king threatens her. Um, with her life, uh, this is Act Five, Scene Three, about line two sixty or so. This ring you say was yours. The king says, "I, my lord, where did you buy it? Or who gave it to you? It was not given, nor did I buy it. Who lent it to you? It was not." She's doing everything she can not to give this away, and none of these answers satisfies the king. Um, and then he threatens her, and down below, about line 280, she says, I'll never tell you, take her away. Um, she has sworn not to say anything, so she, she's willing to risk her life, in some ways the way, no, exactly the way Helena did, when she risked healing the king, do you remember? It's the two women in the play who have the courage to put their lives on the line for reasons other than their own vainglory. Because we know that when the, men, when the men went off to war, they were doing it for their own glory, okay? Helena arrives and makes clear what happened, uh, that she's alive, and she's met the conditions that Bertram set on her. Now, he, if, and because he's unmasked, he can't hide anymore, he has to marry her. So he's been unmasked, he's, he's had to ad publicly admit to his faults. It's gotta be a humiliating scene for him, but, it prepares for their marriage. Or, or now it makes it possible for them to consummate it because they're already married, okay? That's the play. Now let me go to the question I think some of you, and I, I know you did, Helen. Um, we spent some time on this and I don't want to spend too much time, but, but let's take a few minutes. The, the question that I asked at the outset is, when we started the play is, is she a Machiavellian woman? Remember I, I set up in contrast Chaucer's story on um, Griselda. In The Clerk's Tale, in The Canterbury Tales, um, the clerk tells the story of this woman who, who is obedient to her husband in everything. He takes away all of her children, um, dissolves the marriage. It's all tests. It's all to test her. It's like Job. She's being tested to see if her obedience is real, and she meets all of the conditions. The modern feminists, lots of moderns, will say she's a, a doormat. The husband's just using her. Um, so we've got a, an image of um, a woman who shows absolute obedience to her husband. I mean, that's not a popular world today for men or women. And in Shakespeare, we've got a, um, a story about a woman who meets all of the conditions that her husband puts on her. Except the difference is, Griselda is passive. She lets all these things happen. Helena is different because she's so resourceful. She does everything she can to meet those conditions. So you've got two images of obedience. One you can say is Christian that looks back 
to another way of looking at things and one is modern. So the question that I asked everybody is, is she a Machiavellian woman or not? And, and if, if, if that doesn't make immediate sense to you, remember, Machiavelli wrote The Prince and the argument that he's making is that the highest end of man is the political order and if a king wants to rule well, he will do everything he can to maintain or realize that order, even if it means killing people. So according to that view, people are expendable. I happen to believe the Machiavellian world rules today everywhere. It rules in our government, it rules in our businesses. People are expendable. If they don't do what you want them to do or they're not doing, measuring up to what you want, fire them, get rid of them. So that's a very modern trait. I, be I believe it informs most of our minds, even if we're not aware of it. We're just not aware of how much we do in a spirit of self-serving to achieve whatever ends we want. So here's a play in which this woman does all of this. Is, um, how do we look at her? Is she Machiavellian or not? Helen, you asked the question, so... Well, I think she is to some degree. I mean, she is a product of the time, so she is going to try to fulfill the requirements of her husband, because that's just the time. So she has no choice. But I think she's gone to great length to fulfill that, those requirements. And I think I was just trying to look. There was a, a, um, a sec. Um, she she also said when she was talking to I think the widow, you know, the widow mm -hmm. or Diana. Mm -hmm. um, she said that all's well ends well. I think she did say that. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that kind of infers that she will do what needs to be done to get her wishes. It's so. So she is. I, mean, I think she's a complex. Um, she is on one hand, you know, will do what she needs to do to get what she wants. But at the same time, she is a product of a time, so she is obedient and she does love. So men and women shouldn't any longer be obedient to God or each other? No, no, I say she, she is that. That's a not, but she brings us up to modern times, but yeah. And she does love Betram too the nth degree, and this is why she goes all out to try to win him over. But her way of doing it puts her in that category. So I think she's a multifaceted. That category, meaning? Um, or Wells, ends well, the Machiavellian kind of. Would you say that that's selfish then, that her motives are selfish? I think there's a fine line, you know, <laughs> cross it and then come back to it, is how I see it. I think, yeah. I think you know, people are just multidimensional. I mean, you're not just one way or the other. Yeah. You can't be either or and. That's how I see her. Anybody else? She also finds a situation where she's helping somebody else out. It, flesh that out. Flesh that out. Yeah. Yeah. Diane's going to come out well in this. I mean, she's going to marry well and she's got money. Um, 
Yeah, it's it. I mean, you can look. I'd, I'd never looked at it as her assisting her. It's in one way you can say she's using her. She's convenient to do this, but it, it's going it, to. What happens is going to benefit her clearly. Diana wouldn't. And, and I mean, I guess it, it raises the question: Is what Diana does selfish too? It's interesting. It's the it's those two women who put their lives on the line to do what they have to do. I mean, there's something selfless about both of them in that in that regard. How about the teachers here? Where are you guys on this? Don't look at each other. Here, the question's up here. Come on, you guys. What do you guys say of her? There's five women over at that table. Come on. Is she Machiavellian or not? Yeah. Is she... Let me put this as radically as I can. <laughs> is, is she Christian and selfless in her love? Be, because everything she does is in an effort to try to meet the condition her husband puts on her. And or it, So is she selfless in what she does? Or is what she does selfish? Or is she somewhere between, in a finer line, that Ellen was trying to draw here? She's, you do? Why? I mean, I think the selfless thing would have been to accept the fact that he doesn't share the same things for her. And there was no need to um, be conniving <laughs> to get what she wanted out of him. Yeah. Good for you. Follow that up, can you? Flesh that out. Meaning by that what? To show how faithful she was, I guess, on the trust that it would make him a better a man because he'd have to hold himself to a, a law that he wasn't. I mean, he's not in anything he does. Um, he doesn't hold himself to anything. Here, before we go any farther, I just want to remind you of some of the speed. We're not going to have time to go over them, but I'm hoping you'll remember them. Remember in the very open when she talked about virginity, and I made the case that it's one of the reasons I chose the play because she's on the verge of modernity and we tend to dismiss virginity in our, in our world. Um, pregnancy and things like that. I mean, we live in a world in which it's easy to dismiss abortion. You know, this thing, get rid of it. So it's our world. It's shaped us. It's what we carry. Um, it's not the others, it's us. Um, in that virginity, she, speaks, she says, um, my, my virginity, not yet. In me, my Lord will find, and there's a long list including everything that a woman could possibly be to her husband. A mistress, a queen, an enemy, a captain, a mistress, you know. There's nothing she'd, and we have to ask, is that bad? I want to get back to the lines I read when, when she and the widow said, use the words about what they did was a wicked deed lawfully. We have to ask that question. But remember the virginity speech. Remember the speech when you said, in ourselves our remedies do lie. That too often we hold back because we don't have the courage to go forward trusting in heaven. 
she had a great enough trust that she could go to the king and put her line on the line, believing that with God's help she could heal him. And she did. The opening lines of the next scene, Lefuse lines are, the, the age of miracles has passed. He says that because everybody recognizes what she did shocked everybody. She, she was the instrument for a miracle. So whatever we say here, we, we just cannot forget those speeches. And then when she, she gets the letter from Bertram saying he's gone, her response is, I, I, I should have brought it to read it, but uh, I should have, but um, she takes that on herself. She feels guilty for having put him and his life at risk when he goes to Italy. And I, I, I remember, when we're reading plays, we have to be careful because sometimes when we're reading what people say to one another, we have to ask whether they're being genuine. Iago says nothing honest, ever. Um, but when characters speak soliloquies and nobody's around, we have to take those words seriously. Those words take us into the interior of a person that other pe people don't have access to. So we're, we're made aware that her feelings for Bertram are real, that virginity speech means that her love is not contingent on anything sexual. She loves that man. She says that repeatedly. So either, either she loves this man in a Christian way selfishly, or it's Machiavellian, it's selfish, or <laughs> it's somewhere between. Last couple of minutes. Come on, you guys. What do you... Anybody else before we... Connie, what are your thoughts? I don't know. I think she was, um, like you said, she had a, a, a sincere love for him and kind of like Christ with us. You know, with all of our... Um, being unworthy of him, he still loved us. I think she kind of, in a way, had that same love for Bertrand. Yeah. Doc, do you want to, any thoughts here? I want to be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure what that means. It means I think um, that Connie's right, that she loved him completely, and that she loved him in a Christ-like way. I also think, is it Stephanie? Mm -hmm. I think Stephanie is right that um, she forces herself on him. Yeah. And um, she, that, she offers. Give evidence of that, Doc, can you? Because she goes <laughs> to the king, she heals the king, the king gives her her choice, she makes her choice. Bertram says, no, I don't want anything to do with it. And the king's going to make him stick to it. I mean, she's, um, and she feels bad that she's caused him to run off to Italy. On the other hand, she then takes her pilgrimage to Italy right. and, um, and follows him. Um, so anyway, I'm just, I'm not sure, and I think probably that um, Kai's position is the one that Shakespeare wants us to see. Can you defend that? Can you give any support for that? Because almost everything you've said is calls into question that position. I don't. I don't have any question about her, her love, and how much she wants to be his wife, um, and how much good she wants to do him. 
That's your ideal. We're in a marriage here. I need to be really careful. <laughs> I'm not sure what she's saying here. <laughs> here, I'm going to raise some questions, see if we can. My, my positions with Connie is just, I mean, I think you probably already know that. And I, and I think Susanna's right that I think that's what Shakespeare did. If you read the form of the play, you know, we can read for our own ideas. I'm going to come to that. We're not supposed to read for our ideas. We're supposed to read for what's there. Um, Shakespeare was Catholic, pretty sure. Um, um, according to his beliefs and everything he's shown, I, I, I want to come back to tragedies. We're going to get to those in a minute. Shakespeare believed in Christ. And I think he... Um, Christ was serious to him, and it was a question of how he could show Christ working in the world and what he does in both the comedies and the tragedies. Most of the women in the, are the heads of the, they're the leading figures in all the comedies, um, except for one, um, Taming of the Shrew. I almost want to do that here to, to, to set some women off against a man. I, 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 think, it would out, I, think, I think it would outrage a lot of women, but, but anyway, there, he had an amazing understanding of our human sexuality. I, I, I think even in some ways greater than Dante's. Um, Shakespeare believed in Christ, and I think most of us know from our marriages, or even not, that as much as we want, we're, we, I think we were created to love and be loved. So the ideal the source of that is the Trinity. I keep going back to that. Um, the, the love between the persons of the Trinity is absolute. I mean, I, I'm assuming everybody knows that. Um, that. That they indwell perfectly with one another. That's the nature of the Trinity. That's the nature of the love we've been called to. We're not Protestants. We, we, we're not meant to make the individual greater than somebody else. We're communal. We were created to love and be loved. So ideally, we would hope that in a marriage, even if there are inequalities or, or something less than perfectly reciprocal loves, that at some point in the growth of our love, we would come to that. But speaking honestly, is that the way it is? I mean, isn't it often the case that one person loves the other more than the other, and over the course of a marriage, the people grow, in hopefully, in love, so that by, by at some point in the marriage, you can say of, of the couple in that marriage, they are one flesh. It's an incarnated love. They become one. I, I don't think that's a metaphor. They become one with each other exactly as the persons of the Trinity. That's our call in marriage. Even if we fail, we're supposed to still keep working at it. If you look at drama as a foreshortening of a life, because remember, this only takes place in an hour and a half, and in the play, the time is maybe, what, a week or... I don't even know, don't even remember the duration, but it's not a long time. But every play that every great poet writes, certainly Shakespeare, represents a foreshortening 
What happens in Anthony and Cleopatra happens in a very short time, but we're wa what we're watching is something happening in the two of them that represents the movement of a lifetime. What they come to the end is not what they began with. So um, if you look at, at the end, you see that Bertram's been corrected tremendously and Helena's fulfilled her love. Um, in, in one sense, for me, she images Christ because she loves him she doesn't complain, doesn't take him apart. He is taken apart. Everything that happened exposes him. But she loves him. It's, it, you can say it's an unconditional love, but she meets the conditions placed on her. So um, the, the strange thing that we have to do, and that Shakespeare has done in an amazing way, is reconcile what seems to be an unconditional love. Remember at the very beginning when she says, not my virginity yet, she will be all these things. She's showing something like Mary's love, that she's gonna go through this love, she will be all things. She doesn't know what she's gonna be facing. She has no clue. How many of us, when we, begin, when we enter into marriage, have any clue what we're gonna be facing? While the divorces, I mean, we're, it, marriage is in trouble. It's such a struggle in our world. I mean, if prayers were needed anywhere, it's in marriages today. It's, 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 such, it's such an unchristian world in so many ways. Anyway, I would just say that I, I think she's an, an extraordinary image of, of a, a love that's Christ-like in that sense, that she meets these conditions. I don't think she forces herself on him at all. What she does is meet his conditions. And remember, whatever else you say about the two of them, um, nobody can heal the king. She does. The king doesn't want her to do that. And it's because she's so persistent in her love and she's willing to risk her life that he does. All of the men, all of the men, God, I, the, the, I've already said this, I mean, it, it's an embarrassment. All the men in, this, in these plays we've been reading are scoundrels. I mean, they really are. Um, scumbags is not too harsh a word. Um, the, the, the men at court owe their obedience, they owe their life to their king. They're supposed to give him obedience. When you look at the obedience between the men and the women in this play, who comes out on top? And very often when you give obedience, it's, it, it's, you do it knowing that there will likely be a reward. If you serve the king well, you'll, you know, you'll be among the nobles, you'll be honored. Every one of the nobles who's brought before the king when Helena has her choice, wants her. They see her as an extraordinary woman. And they're, they're there at the, at the will of the king. Whoever she chooses, she gets. She rejects every one of them, comes to Bertram. If he were a good lord, and he's not, he would have obeyed the king. One of the most embarrassing scenes, certainly for me in the book, is when he starts arguing with the king. And, and at the beginning of the scene, he's, he's going to court because he says, I owe my subject, I'm subject to my king. What a laugh. If he's subject to his king, he should have done what the king asked him. When men go into battle in war, I mean, some of us were in the military. When you go into battle and a sergeant tells you to take a hill and you know you're going to die, what do you, you start to have an intellectual argument with your sergeant because you think he's making a stupid decision? How many men die in battle because of, because of the horrors of war? Those men owe their life to the king. All of the men were willing to do it except Bertram. So I, I have no, nothing good to say about that man, except he will be a better man at the end for having gone through all of this. He will learn, I mean, that's, I think, Shakespeare's hope. He will learn to love because of the love she has shown him. 
And how, how often is that true in marriage? Most of us don't like to be humiliated. In fact, I'd say few of us do. How often are we humbled in our marriages because of what we do or our spouse does? And we have to learn to overcome those if we're to love the way we should. Um, we can spend our lives faulting each other, you know, because we're not doing what we should. And there's probably a lot of truth in that. But at some point still, we're asked, we're asked to do two things that Christ asks. And I've tried to be really clear in this. We're asked not to just let, go th to let things go and enable, because just going along with injustices or wrongs don't help anybody. Nowhere in a marriage does that help. And we're asked not to be legalistic. Both of those are things we're asked to avoid. Yeah? I'm hoping. Because either one of those presents dangers to ourselves and our loved ones. If we're too legalistic, it's not going to help that person become good. If we're too enabling, it's just going to abet crimes, disorders. The hard task for every one of us is to, to be just in love. How easy is that to do? Helena does it. She's extraordinary. She meets the law, the conditions. She didn't put them down, he did. And she does it in this extraordinary way. She's careful of him. She takes his burdens on herself. Um, that's a heavy burden to put on a woman, you know, in terms of the play. Um, um, that's what he does. Um, we can... You know, if you, if you read Jane Austen's novels, and I'm assuming some of them, or a lot of the women, you know that there's, there's not a relationship that, that doesn't depend on somebody doing something or other. But in Jane, Jane Austen, what you end up with is reciprocal loves. I mean, that's, you know, Shakespeare's dealing with deeper, harder things, I think. Um, but go ahead, last word. Remember that he, they were married before he left for... Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I mean, we don't know, we, but go ahead. We can assume that, and we can also look at, at what Eleanor does as she is helping um, Bertram to live to his, his uh, vows, his sacramental vows, his sacramental Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know the other thing that, that makes this hard, wait, give me one second, Bob. The, Shakespeare does nothing to make explicit that he's Catholic or makes a Catholic thing of things. He, do, he tries to be faithful to our ordinary circumstances but helps us to see the very best and the worst in ourselves. Um, um, one of the things that, that I think is hard to hold on to in our world the 21st century, is the cross. We're, we're so ready to get legalistic. You did this. You owe me. You know, I, I, I deserve better. Nobody should treat me that way. I mean, she, she, we could have had a play in which a woman would have done those things. She doesn't do a single one of those things. By, by the way, those of, I don't know if any of you have read Winter's Tale, which I think is Shakespeare's greatest play. Um, what the king does in that play is awful, and the, the woman, the, the, to, one of the most remarkable women in all of Shakespeare, Paulina, is ready to tear his eyes out. I mean, she's just an extraordinary woman. The king's going to cost her her husband's life. 
She's going to lose her husband. She doesn't hold that against him. And 16 years pass, and what happens at the end of that play is one of the most extraordinary things I've ever experienced in all of literature. Helen doesn't go into her relationship. I mean, she had every reason to say, you dumped me, I, I'm better, I don't deserve this. Gone. What she does is Christ-like in that sense. She meets these laws, but she brings to them this love that's, that doesn't give in to all those other things that are such temptations I'm taking to all of us. Me, you, all of you. Bob, go ahead. Right. So the marriage could be invalid. And then the fact that Helen used deception to, uh, you know, to fulfill uh, the requirements put on her by Bertram as long as those were. Yeah. Let me, let me take a, one of those just for a second. Um, I, think, um, I think Helena, or I mean, sorry, Helen made the point, and I, I think it's important not to forget it. Whatever happens, there are things peculiar to a period in history. And in that period, it was a, an, an aristocracy. The men are there. They owe obedience to the king if they have to give them. So I think they would look at the legitimacy of the vows in a way slightly different. He owed obedience to the king. He was supposed to give it. But let me, that's a minor thing. But um, go ahead. I, I want to, but the other thing about deception I want to get to because it, it goes to I just want to take this as the last question is what they did elicit because um, she was deceiving Bertram Look, wait but go ahead so, well, I was just going to comment on the validity of the marriage because if it was never consummated technically it wasn't valid right but it does become valid when she well, sleeps yeah. with him but the deception yeah. right yeah which makes it to me yeah she's a very strong woman. Shakespeare has written this about over and over about these strong women, okay? But it's her it's her whole idealistic way of getting to the point. And so he ends the play or gives the title to the play of All's Well That Ends Well. That's a question that leads it to is that really what kind of life she wants? Well, I mean she, she shows her she I think she answers that fairly clearly by her actions all along. Let me ask this question to close it. And just take a minute with it, and then we've got to stop. Is what she did illicit? Remember, the, I, I read those lines where she and the widow, what, what, Act 3, what was, if I can read them again, Act 3, Scene 11. Act 3, Scene 11. Seven. Seven, sorry. Um, so, they plot, the, the two of them plot this thing, and, and Helena says, if its speed is wicked meaning in a lawful deed and lawful meaning in a lawful act, where both not sin and yet <coughs> a sinful fact. Let's get to the, the, the nub of this for a second. Is what they did illicit because it was a deception? And be careful if we can. Remember, the two dangers for us is being too legalistic too loose. Where is Shakespeare in this? Is what she is what they did illicit because it involved a deception? Can anybody use 
evil means to achieve good ends, if I can put it that way. Pride. Huh? No, no, I'm, if, no, I'm not talking about the motives. I'm saying, can anybody use an evil act as something that's bad with the intention of trying to bring good out of it? No? I think she's trying to split here. There. What? I think she's trying to split here, just like back um, in the Merchant of Venice. She's, she's saying that it's not against, she, it's legal in a sense, it's, it's, I mean, she acknowledged that it's a trick that she's performing, but it's not illegal technically because she is his wife. I'm just reading into mm -hmm. it. She is mm -hmm. his wife, and that she's also fulfilling the conditions she set up. Yeah. Set up. yeah. So I think he, she's kind of riding that two side, you know, um, fulfilling the law, so to speak, and then, but at the same time, saying, okay, but it's not quite above board. So I think she's acknowledging both. That gets back to that all's well, ends well. Her, her, her line, her quote. I want to ask that question again because I'm not sure anybody's answering it. Or I think there should, there's a distinction between if you cause the deception, you, the good that comes of it is not licit. It's as opposed to Christ using an evil situation and allowing good to come forth from it. He didn't or doing something to bring good out of it. He didn't cause right. the evil, but he's able to bring fruit from it. She caused the deception. How did she cause that? Because well, I wait, take your whole take your own framework, because I thought it was wonderful. How did she cause that bad? She went and brought the proposition and initiated the deception. Who put the conditions on whom? <laughs> but she, I mean, according, I thought, if I, unless I misunderstood it, I thought you were saying, if somebody caused something and then used a deception, that would be really bad. But if somebody didn't cause it and used a deception to bring good out of it, and your example I thought was Christ, that is, he brings good out of evil, that's what he does, and that's what God does. Where does she fall in those two categories? But she propositioned Wait. Right. Right. Well, she goes, oh, okay. You have this list. I can get around your list. I can do this in order to fulfill my wishes. Right. Wait. Let me. I because I I may be misunderstanding. It. I thought the two categories you set up were, if somebody caused something right. and use the so you're saying Bertram caused it by setting up by giving the list that's what I'm saying Helena caused it by setting up the proposition what proposition with the widow and Diana but that's after that's after the conditions that he set up she's only, wait she's only doing what she does because he set those he set the framework for that to happen okay. so the two categories as I understood it wait just one is one if you cause it and use a deception then it's illicit. It's bad because it's evil all the way through. But if somebody else does it and you use the deception, I thought this was what you were saying, then it's okay right. because you're bringing good out of evil. Bertram's list is not a deception. 
that's conditions that she's working with, and she uses a deception. Here, let me let me go back because here because we've got to stop. Um, one of the one of the propositions that I would put out tonight is if if we understand God at all. Is there any, the Job story, I mean, look at any event in the Bible. Is there anything that he does that, wait, and by the way, we're going to get, I hope we're all together, but I hope, I'm not chasing everybody away tonight, but if we ever get to Boethius, it's going to come after the epics, Boethius is going to make the, it's, and this is at the center of Christianity. There is no fortune that is bad. I don't want to get into that, it's a long, you, you'll see when you get there, you, you'll shake your head and say, he's absolutely right. If God is a God of love, and we, we believe, the Protestants don't believe that. The Protestants believe everything in nature is corrupted from the fall. We don't. We believe that God made everything good. Is there any act that he could do, even if it involves an evil, but doesn't have good as its end? No. Absolutely not. Everything God does, and if, if we take him at his word, there's nothing that we do that he doesn't know. He knows the depths of our hearts in the ways that we don't. So he's trying to do everything he can to protect our free will while he corrects the steps that in our depths. He's doing everything he can to take evil and turn it to good. The question I'm asking here is, and I thought your categories are really good. Um, if Helena had caused the conditions and used deception, I mean, I'm following your logic, then she'd be bad. But if somebody else did and she used deception to bring good out of it, then you've got another category. One of the interesting things is she's working with something and using deception to bring a good out of it. Um, I mean, we, we all, I mean, I, I'm trusting all of us have had experiences of literature of really selfish women. Does she fit into that category? Is she, self, is she Machiavelli or, you know? Shakespeare has created a woman and put her in such a, a situation in which you're bringing these things together, you know, where you're, where you're having to walk a fine line to look at something. That's why I tried to call us back to her speeches, because there, there's, you can't read Iago and not see selfishness. He's doing everything he can to destroy, destroy people. I, I can't find a hint of anything selfish in her character. Loving somebody is not selfish. Doing, Christ went to a cross to give a love that we couldn't and that we struggle daily, I'm assuming failing all the time. I mean, I think one of the wounds, I think, I think we, we suffer from two wounds. One of the wounds is our fall. The other wound we carry, I think, I'm assuming most of us, is that we don't live up to the love. I mean, we struggle and struggle and fail daily and still keep trying to, you know, to love. Um, he was God. He, that's his gift to us. It involves a cross. Um, where is Helen in that, that? Let's stop. Um, I'm glad we had the time. Um, I'm, um, I'm, I hope everybody will take this home and, and take off the boxing gloves if there are any when you get home. Um, let's, is everybody okay if we go ahead? I'd like to, I, I think it's worth thinking about because it, at least in one respect, it helps us appreciate how obscure the human heart is. We're so quick to make judgments and there's so much about each other that we don't know and we're still asked to love. And Shakespeare's showing us again and again and again in these plays, you know. Um, okay.
um, Anthony and Cleopatra. I'm going to do two things tonight that that I that I I think were are important for what we're doing. One of them has to do with the soul, and the other has to do with emotions. Um, Sorry, went the soul. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. That should have been tragedy. When we get to the Iliad, I'm going to show the the human soul according to the classical world. But to, today I want to do it for St. Thomas, okay? This is really crucial. According to St. Thomas, the human soul has um, three faculties. Actually, there's two. There's the rational faculty and the appetitive. Okay, two faculties. I, I want this to be absolutely clear because it's really cr crucial. The human soul has two faculties. We know that from common sense. I think, I don't know if I gave this example in this room. If we were on a desert and we got stranded and had no water and we were approaching a, um, what do you call it, a, with the water? An oasis. oasis, thanks. If we were approaching an oasis and we were, knew we were dying of thirst, and we were rushing there thankful that we could finally have water. And as we approach the oasis, we see a sign next to the oasis, the oasis that says, poison. Somebody described the state at that moment that any of us would be in. Despair. Be despair. Hmm? Despair. Yeah, and divided, wouldn't it? Wouldn't one part of us want to drink? Because we're dying, we've been wanting, we want, that's our, our appetites. We want to drink, right? But we know from our mind that it might be poisonous, that if we do drink, we die. We face those risks every day. I mean, we're asked to be courageous and take risks because we know there's going to be a cost if we do this or we don't do, you know. So we're involved with those kinds of choices every day. Our desires move us towards something, but our intellect says yes or no. So we know just by our own experiences that the soul has these two faculties. Plato says, and, er, and Homer will say this when we get there, that um, the middle part, the middle form of the apathy is called themos. Themos, or anger. That um, you can describe the soul in terms of a rational power, this is Plato's description, and two horses, a black and a white horse. The white horse are the appetites directed towards noble things, truth, beauty, goodness. Those are all transcendentals, right? God's truth, his goodness, his beauty. So some part of the human soul longs for truth, beauty, and goodness, the, the unity of God. But there are other appetites that want that are um, directed towards physical satisfactions: food, drink, sex, things. 
right? We want those. So um, Plato would have said that reason controls the appetites. I want to keep eating. I want sex. Through that middle power. C.S. Lewis uses the same model in, in a book of his called Abolition of Man. But one of the most important things that distinguishes us from the animals and angels, and angels, hold on to that, angels, is that middle part. It's our heart. The love of noble things. According to C.S. Lewis and Plato, the whole tradition behind us is, um, one of the best things that we can do for, for ourselves in living and in helping our children is to, is to make good hearts. How do we form good hearts? Make a child's heart good, help a child's heart to be good when he's young. Not his mind, his heart. His mind will do better when he grows up. Um, when Christ said, feed my sheep, John Paul, when he used that, was thinking, how do I help young people develop good hearts? It's the most press, I think it's the most pressing need of our age. We're too, too many of us live in our minds like angels, like we think we're good. It's more important to have good hearts. Here's what Thomas says. Um, reason directs us, um, but um, so it controls the appetites, but it does it through this middle section because this middle section is called the will. It's appetites as they're, as they're grasped through the intellect. So what Thomas says is, this is the apprehensive power of man. It can apprehend things. Apprehensive power. The will is um, what that part of man that moves through the apprehensive faculty. It's the good as apprehended. So the will moves to the good as it's apprehended. It's more directly in contact with the mind. The physical appetites have to be brought under control. Food, sex, drink, all that stuff. So the intellective appetite is the will. It's higher than the other because it moves towards what the good that the mind can grasp. So if the mind is turned towards truth, goodness, beauty, it has a help in moving to that because it has the will behind it. So the will can help the appetites say no when we want too much food or too much drink. Now why is this important? Take a look at that other sheet I gave you tonight on the emotions. Do you have it, Doc? The reason I brought this is because I knew there was going to be all these questions about love. Is Helena's love good or not? I mean, let me, I don't want to go back to that, but just, you know, it's, it's an important question to ask. Is it selfless or selfish? Or Take a look at that sheet. Um, this is extraordinary, and it differs from Plato in major ways. This is far more Catholic. Take a look at the back side. Most people think of the emotions as random and chaotic. Wouldn't most of you agree? Very often we'll find ourselves in a situation our emotions will go haywire and you, know, you, you want to step back and gather, your, gather yourself together, get your emotions under control. 
St. Thomas says there, there is an order and an end to the emotions because there's an order and end to human life, to us as humans. So learning to order our emotions is one of the greatest tasks we have because so long as our emotions are disordered, we won't be able to love the way we should. Is that clear? The great Christ, Christ didn't ask us to be smart. He asked us to love. The great challenge for us is learning to love the way we should. The great task is to learn to order our emotions, our loves. Thomas says there's an order and an end to the emotions. They're not chaotic. They're not random at all. They have a nature. The beginning of all emotions, If you are you all on the back sheet? The beginning of all emotions is love. The natural end of love is what? It's joy. Right? Joy, hold on. Joy means to rest in the beloved, the object of love. Once we attain that beloved, we rest. We're in joy. There's no more straining. There's no more fighting. No more anxious. We rest. What's the end? What's the end of the human person as we understand it? God. God. Right? The beatific vision. Because all of our longing will be answered then. When we're in the presence of him and all desires are put to... St. Augustine, my soul is restless until I rest in thee. So the end of all of our labors is rest. At the end of every Shakespeare play, whether it's a comedy or a tragedy, what do we come to at the end? It's a rest, a good. The evil's been answered in tragedy. Yes? The evil's gone. It's been overcome. When it, however painful it is, at the end, all the wrongs have been answered, we come to a rest. Every tragedy situates us on the threshold between this life and the next. Whether it's Othello or Anthony Cleopatra or Lear, it doesn't matter. The wrong has been answered. It's been cleansed. Preparation has been made for a new order. We're at rest. I've, I th hope that's clear. Cut, cut Othello off four pages before the end. Would anybody be at rest? Not going to happen. Cut Merchant of Venice off three pages. Is, it, is anybody going to be at rest? It's not going to happen. It's a work of art. The whole intention of that work in art is to produce a love, a desire that's answered to bring the person experiencing to a rest. At the end of a tragedy, a catharsis, a cleansing of the tragic emotions has taken place. I've gone over this, right? Pity and fear, gone. We're at, our souls have been cleansed of the disorders. So there's two trajectories. There's one that moves the, the, the person towards the thing loved, the wife, the husband, God, yeah, whatever, our children, whatever we love. And there's, an, that's the first trajectory, the major one. There's a secondary um, trajectory that, um, that shows the movement of the soul answering those things that threaten that first trajectory. Is that clear? Everybody desires the good. That's the natural end of desires is good. We want good. Right? We drink too much, we want to put that away. If we eat too much, too much, we've got to answer our desires to learn to order our desires so that we can rest in the good. That's the struggle of our life. At the same time, we have to answer all of those things that threaten that good. 
So that it brings into play the second trajectory. You hate the thing that, if a person comes into your house with a gun threatening your family, you're gonna open your arms to him? Uh, or if your husband runs away to Italy and leaves you with these conditions, you're gonna suddenly feel happy? Um, you, you hate the, the, whatever it is that threatens the good that you seek, whether it's in yourself or another. Yes? So the first trajectory gives rise to desires, hope, because as you're moving towards it, you hope to f attain it. Yes? Daring, you're willing to risk yourself for the sake of that good, and finally to achieve it. And I know all of us that have moments in our marriage where we rest. Whatever the struggles are, there are moments that we just are glad to be there. There are times when we struggle, when something threatens that good that we're after, we hate it. We have an aversion for it. We pull away from it. We turn away. We despair. We're afraid of that thing. And if it gets in the way, we experience a sorrow. We're on the way to church and we learn that somebody we love died in an accident. The natural response is sorrow. One of the things we love is lost. And, and we might have been frightened. Let's say we knew that the guy, that somebody in our family may have been drinking too much. We were afraid that this would happen. It happens. We feel sadness. Okay? Is everybody clear? Our, our emotions have a nature. They have an order. We move towards the good that we seek. We turn away from the things that threaten that good. All poetry, great poetry, takes us through all of these emotions. It points towards a joy, a reconciliation, a rest, and it very often takes us through struggles where we have to deal with aversion, despair, fear. Okay? Notice that in that, in describing that nature, this is from Aristotle, by the way, in St. Thomas, there's only one emotion that, does, that belongs to both trajectories. It's anger. Because anger, according to Aristotle, and this is St. Thomas, anger is not a sin. If somebody comes into your house and wants to break on, do you think you're going to be peaceful when you point a gun at him? I mean, I don't see anybody mustering the courage to fight off somebody who's a threat to you without some motion of anger. Anger is the rec rec rectifying virtue. It, it rectifies, it answers wrongs. Take it away. What, what do most companies want to see least of in their lives, in their employees? Anger. Somebody gets angry at them, they're going to fire them. People don't like anger. It's a virtue. Is rage a virtue? No. No. Rage is the, I mean, if you look at the virtues, rage is a sin. Wrath is one of the sins, not anger. It's wrath. It's our anger that helps us hold us to align when things get hard. That's why it's between the two um, trajectories. Okay? So just one thing before we go. Remember, the end of all of our longing is the good in each other, in God. That our struggles are trying to help us become better in what we do, to become good. And that means we have to struggle with all of these emotions, hope, daring, aversion, despair. Um, and anger is a help. The interesting thing to me is I, I can't remember Helena getting angry once. I'd say she had good cause myself, but um, 
Okay, that's, I just want you to keep that in mind, okay? Now remember, the tragic action that we've been talking about with Othello and, and um, Anthony and Cleopatra According to Aristotle, every tragic action moves from a um, good fortune to bad. But in every tragedy, every good tragedy, a moment of recognition occurs where the tragic hero sees his fault and it makes possible a turn, a peripatia. A turn. Some wrong is answered and it moves the action towards a close, a resolution, the ending, what we can call arrest. So that in Othello, arrest is achieved and Anthony and Cleopatra it is. And the question is, how do we look at that ending? It's interesting that in, in Anthony and Cleopatra, just like Othello, we've got two people who take their lives at the end. So we're dealing with, that isn't why I chose it, by the way. I chose it for other reasons, but we've got a, something of a parallel there. Um, let me try to put this differently, to put this into perspective. Um, did Iago ever have a moment of recognition? Does he recognize his evil? Does he turn? Does he really see the nature of evil and want to turn from it? No. Does Othello? Yes. Can you, this is getting ahead, but I, I want just quickly to make this point. Are, are there any moments of recognition in Anthony and Cleopatra? Go ahead. Um, Cleopatra is all about living for herself and making herself happy. She's not going to be able to have Anthony the way she wants to live, and she would rather not live. And the same with Anthony. He's got to sell his soul, so to speak, and marry Caesar's sister. Yeah. And he comes to find out it's not worth it. Yeah, right on. After the first battle, we'll look at these passages. We're going to stop in just a minute because it's late. But right after the first battle, Anthony has a sense that he's completely lost himself, doesn't know himself anymore. And he'll have an even deeper of experiencing that sort of thing in the third battle when he loses again. But after the first battle, he's ready to throttle Cleopatra. I want to look at these scenes later, but she says, pardon me, pardon please. Can you see her doing that at any point up to that point? Not at all. So both, both of those characters have moments of recognition where they learn to see themselves as they are. Can any of us get to heaven without acknowledging our sins, without seeing ourselves as we are, according to our faith? Absolutely not. So inherent in our faith, and our faith is based on our nature, is the belief that unless we learn to see ourselves as we are, our sins, and turn, we're in trouble. So every tragedy takes the form of, a, of an action, a movement from good fortune to bad, but it always leaves us at a point where the bad has been answered. I, I went through that with Othello. We're going to see it here, okay? So just remember that. The other thing to remember is this. In every great tragedy, the tragic hero is almost always a noble-souled individual, has a nobility, whether it's Oedipus, 
in Oedipus Rex or Othello or Lear or Macbeth, doesn't matter. Every tragedy shows something noble about the human soul, but there's a fault, some flaw that, that um, plays itself out in that person's life and, and results in certain bad things, okay? But the point that I want to make here is that, is that if you look at the tragic action in stages, what, what we see is that the tragic hero moves from a, of a position of virtual ignorance about himself. There's lots of things he doesn't know about himself, but he reaches a point where he sees himself. When, as he approaches that moment, he enters a darkness that isolates him from the rest of the world. He no longer identifies himself with the rest of the world. Now think about the importance of that because for most of us, I think it's easier just to get along in the world, to do what everybody else does. In tragedy, the tragic hero always reaches a moment where he's isolated. He enters a darkness. He, he doesn't see things the way other people do any longer. It isolates him completely from the world. And then something happens that takes him to another plane, if you will. Think about Othello. Is there any way to look at Othello without seeing that he entered that darkness when he began to question his relationship with Desdemona? The pain of it, the suffering of it? So every tragedy takes us into the interior of a person, the darkness there, and what every person has to face in that darkness. All, all the landmarks, all the signposts that the person is dependent on in life are gone. He enters an obscurity of darkness. Everything that helped make sense of the world is gone. It, it teaches him to look at the world in a very different way. And the tragic action takes him out of it. So whether it's Oedipus, if you know Oedipus Rex, to go back to one of the first tragedies who thought he knew everything and then discovered that he didn't and blinded himself, or Othello or Lear, it, it doesn't matter. Here it'll be Anthony and Cleopatra. But that's the tragic action. And I, I tried to emphasize this last week. Remember, tragedy, remember I gave the example of Joyce, the, the sliver of glass piercing the woman and the journalist saying it was a tragedy? That's not a tragedy. It was an accident. Tragedy, at least in the literary world, means an action that goes from good fortune to bad, but takes the hero through a point where he, he grows in self-knowledge. He sees something about himself that he didn't see before. It, it, it draws him into a darkness and obscurity where he loses his bearings you know, on the world. He, he can't see things the way that he did before. And it takes him towards the end. Now hold on to that because that's true of all tragedies. If you hold on to it, you'll see that's exactly what happens to both Anthony and Cleopatra. Okay? Now I'm going to do, we're not, I wanted to get to the play tonight, but we didn't. I want to just leave everybody with this thought. Um, you know from last week that there are two worlds. There's Rome and um, Egypt. And Rome is masculine, Egypt feminine. And that both Anthony and Cleopatra identify with their worlds at the beginning of the play. Anthony is Roman to his core. He's the greatest soldier in the world. Caesar knows that. Um, Cleopatra is probably one of the most beautiful women in the world, if not the most. Very sexual, given to pleasure. Two very different worlds. At the end of it, so we can, if we look at the line of action, we can see Caesar's line as a rising action. He continues to flourish and he even defeats the two at the end. 
so in terms of the world and everything that Caesar represent, Caesar, Caesar's life can be described in terms of a rising action. He will be there when the Pax Romana begins. He, in fact, he will bring it in, the, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. Late in the play, Caesar, in I think it's the second battle, he says, universal peace is near at hand. He's, com he's convinced that once he defeats Anthony and Cleopatra, he'll be able to bring justice and peace to the world. In his mind, he does, okay? So in terms of one perspective in the play, the play is about the success of things in the world. Caesar represents everything um, that Rome represents itself. Success, power, justice. I'll come back to that again next week. Everything it does attempts to answer some wrong that had already been done to straighten it out to make things good. And it leads to the Pax Romana, the universal peace. The gates of war will be closed for almost 200 years in Rome after Anthony and Cleopatra are defeated. So from the world's perspective, there's a rising action. From the perspective of Anthony and Cleopatra, here's my question. Is the action up or down? Because we know that at the end, Anthony and Cleopatra are both going to take their lives. So from the perspective of Caesar, it's tragic in a negative sense. My question is, is there another line of action? Is there something else going on that Shakespeare's trying to help us see? Okay, now let me try to, if I can, just a couple of things. You remember last time that, I, I think I, I read the opening lines and, and mentioned the apophatic, this way of knowing by negations. It's one of the great traditions of our faith, the mystical knowledge, that one of the ways we know is by knowing what's not there. And I gave the example in the opening lines when the pair make their stage entrance. Cleopatra's first words are, tell me how much. He says, it'll put a limit on you. Says, she says, I'll put a limit. He says, if it takes a limit, it will take a new heaven and a new earth. So that exchange opens and closes on two apophatic kinds of knowledge. We don't hear the word. What were the words he just spoke that we don't hear? I love you. It makes her say, I mean, think about Shakespeare's genius. I'm just amazed. It makes Shakespeare say, tell me how much, or Cleopatra say, tell me how much. We don't hear those words. We know them by their absence. That's not accidental in Shakespeare's part. He's teaching us to see there's something there even though we don't see it. It, it has led to my question for weeks. Is God at work in the world in ways we don't see. Just because we don't see him, does it mean he's not there? Are these plays teaching us to see anything that's hard to see because of the ordinary ways we see things? Okay? Opening lines. I love you. We don't, we don't hear them. We know them by their absent. Closing lines. Then it will take a new heaven and new earth. Do we know that new heaven and new earth? No. It won't be made visible to us until Christ. It's just off the horizon. A new heaven and new earth. That is a way of loving unconditionally that's going to cost a cross. Do the Romans know it? No, they do not. So this apophatic runs through the play. So my first word of encouragement, as you read the play or go back over it, look for descriptions having to do with loss, absence, gaps, privations, because they're everywhere. What's Shakespeare doing with all of that, this apophatic? 
There's, and there's all these withdrawals that are taking place in the plate. Why? So a couple of questions um, heading into the next week, and we'll see if I can get through the whole play next week. How do we look at the ending? Again, in terms of Caesar, what happens to Antony and Cleopatra it looks like a huge failure. Is there something going on in what happens to them that the world doesn't understand? If so, what is it? Okay. I think those are the major questions. The apophatic. What is Shakespeare showing us about things that we don't see very well? As a poet, is he helping us to see things that other people don't see? Those are the... We'll, we'll do... I, I, we're not going to start the Iliad next week. We will finish Anthony and Cleopatra for sure. Okay? We will finish Anthony and Cleopatra. The week after, buckle up. Okay? You've got these again. wonderful questions. Yeah. And I, and, well, so, go ahead. So you had mentioned that there was, um, like, double. Bless that mind of yours. <laughs> no, you are always probing. Go ahead. You had mentioned back, like, in Oswell, there are, like, these double things, like, you know how... Paradoxes. Par no, well, no, you know, like, there was a, a masking of Pirelli. Oh, right, doubling. Doubling. Right, so right. How, what is the, what's the purpose of that, the doubling? God, I wish you had asked it. Um, I think I, 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 a couple of reasons come immediately to mind. One is that through Paroli's, Shakespeare is showing that we move from a, a, um, an age, an epic of acting, action, into thought and words. He's a man who lives... In, in a world of words. He just uses words all the time. And there's no congruity, no um, compatibility between the words he uses and his actions. The few sees through to him immediately. We knew, no, wait, wait. Immediately at the beginning. So on one level, Parolles is an image of something in the culture, that people tend to live it on a level of words and language without seeing discrepancy between that and the way they live. That's a, that's a cultural thing. The other is that I think he's showing by the way he lines up the scenes that Parolles is also an image of something um, Bertram that, that he, sh he I mean it's like foreshadowing Bertram? It's not foreshadowing no 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 it, it's it's imitating it's using a visible thing in the world to render something invisible to us if, if you think about the play Shakespeare's he's amazing he's doing all he can to protect our human nature the dignity of it, the goodness. I picture Bertram as being a really good-looking man, mm -hmm. um, a kind of man that the women would go to easily. <laughs> but morally, right. he, he's bankrupt. He, there's nothing to him. 
so I think Shakespeare is trying to protect the inherent goodness in that guy, even though he does nothing to live, but also so reveal, showing that that's an aspect of his character. And we've got to be clear about that. So we can't be fooled by appearances. He does that a lot. Well, he doesn't do it a lot, but he... There was another uh, doubling, doubling, too, wasn't it? Um, besides Paroli and the, the unmasking. I forgot what was the other one. The two, the two scenes that come to my mind are parallel in the sense that they follow each other. In, in, the, in the scene where Bertram gets his choice and he argues with the king, he, he shows a side of him that we... In the beginning, we don't see these bad things. He's just this noble guy. In that scene, it's hard to read that scene and not see there's something wrong with him. So it's like a beginning of an unmasking. Tied together with that is Lefuse learning to see through Parolis because he says, I see who you are. So there, there they are, one following the other. And then the same thing happens at the end in, the, in Italy when the soldiers tell Bertram that Parolis is this awful guy and they, you know, they unmask. And then following that, Bertram's unmasked. Mm -hmm. So in two places, in sequence, right. he's doing the same thing. I, I just think that's his way of helping us to see, to not be literal-minded, to know that whatever's in front of us is showing something more that we've got to learn to see. Does that answer it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. You always have these. <laughs> not easy. But it, what it does for me, Helen, you know, you can read a play like that and stay on the surface. I, mean, I think all of us do. You know, it's just, it's, a, it's an interesting play. But what you realize is that there's nothing he, he didn't see that modern psychologists think is a product of our modern world. But modern, Freud and, and uh, Jung would call that, Parolis, that false self, that you have to learn to get past that false self in order to and um, throughout the play, Parolis is identified with Bertram. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I think it's Shakespeare's way of showing in poetry that kind of depth. You know, that, that um, I mean, it's just amazing how he's already seen what you know, some modern psychologists think is mm -hmm. original to our time. Right. Um, Did you get the meatballs? Is that? No. Oh. Did you want some? I thought I put some in. Oh, I. I think I put some in a plate and forgot it. You put that away, Doc. God. Oh, oh. I just, I, I, I think, I think they're up there. On the, on the. Thanks, Helen. You too. Have a good week. Oh, wow. I'm just going to put it in the back of the car and leave it. I think we could safely leave it back there, Doc. I'm, I'm, I don't want to do this because it's, it's just... That's everything. That's the done and the... Yeah, yeah.
Yeah. Because you can't really just go down there at any time, right? Because there's been some places. You know, you can call the simple news. Yeah. Oh, they also answer in if you want them to pray for you yeah. or someone in your family will do that too. Yeah, because I need to go down there. Maybe it'll do something at this time of year to bring them stuff because I'm sure there's something that will say what they can use, right? Oh, I'm sure well, it's on the website. It, yeah, um, you can, uh, and I called about that too. It hasn't changed from years past. They can use anything, not so, vegetable food, mm -hmm. but they can eat meat. God, Robert. So, so seafood is okay, but even like stuff, you know, like some of the gravies. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Good night. Good night. See you next. <laughs> See you, Connie. I hope things go well with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Non-perishables because it just sits there and shows everybody leaves. But cleaning supplies, personal. Christ. You know, like.